like some of these schools are like prescribing horseback riding for anxiety. This is not the kind of thing that should be happening on public dollars. It's clear, like obviously not all of this is parents gaming the system, but it seems like there's a whole lot of that going on and we're not even digging in to be like, is this a legitimate need or not? Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. And Ravi, you're coming from Miami, right? The free state of Florida. Mm. I'm just basking in all this this DeSantis-esque freedom down here. Has your wokeness gone there to die? (laughs) I have to say, I really like Miami. Mm. I don't spend a lot of time here, but it's a cool city. It's definitely got a vibe. There are certain cities in America like New Orleans, Miami, where when you touch down, you know where you are. And I Mm. definitely felt it. Not just a wave of humidity, but just the the weirdness that's Miami. Yeah. I, I'm embracing it. Are you still feeling the reverberations of the red wave there or no? You know, it hasn't come up yet, Okay, but it is about to be Art Basel, which I don't exactly know what it is, but basically every crypto person I know is coming to town, which will come in handy for some of the segments mm. we're talking about today. But it's a subdued crypto crowd, I would say. You know, there still yeah. are you know, invitations to the clubs and everything like that. And so I'll be able to report back, you know, with more than substance, maybe some human interest. Mm-hmm. But the city feels a little quieter than I would expect with such a big gathering happening here. Mm. It's a specific crypto like gathering. Well, well, it's, you know, Miami's kind of the informal crypto capital yeah. of the world, I, from what I understand. But Art Basel, I, I think it has nothing to do with crypto. It's like a, I guess, an art gathering. I really don't know, okay. but it's 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 a opportunity for for some reason. Many industry people, especially crypto people, throw parties and get together during Art Basel. I'm not exactly sure what the connection is, but literally every company that still exists seems to be having a party mm-hmm. in the next few days. Interesting. So I'm gonna break out my. Seems glow like it's sticks. probably way less yeah. fun than it would have been last year. I'll report back. You know, I'm, I'm okay. facing this Always question here. about. Yeah, I'm facing this question about whether to go to D.C. to check in on uh, Democratic donors and thinkers at the Democracy Alliance conference to hear about the future of the party or to stick around here and hang out with crypto bros and go to clubs. So mm. we'll, we'll see which of the I'd two I'd vote for the latter. <laughs> well, we've got a packed show today. But before I get anywhere, we've got our voicemail. 321 321-200-0570. 321-200-0570. Uh, send in some voicemails. We're at the end of this episode. We got a pretty funny question for me that I'm going to answer. Also, if you listen to us on Spotify, the other day, I think it was yesterday, Spotify sends people these like year in reviews. And you're able, it'll say, hey, what podcasts do you listen to the most? And it gives you a ranking and a thing you could share. If we're in your top ranking of top five, one thing I ask of you is post that on your Instagram post it on your Twitter and tag us and we'll retweet you. It's a great opportunity for us to spread the word about the podcast. But we have some awesome segments today. I'm really excited. We're going to talk about protests rocking China over their zero COVID restrictions. We talked to Ian Johnson, who's a Pulitzer winning journalist and China expert. We'll also discuss one of the most explosive education stories I've ever read, a story that's really going to boil your blood. But first, Ricky, Sam Bankman-Fried gave an interview to the Deal Book Summit to Andrew Ross Sorkin last night. Given that I'm, I'm having my little my crypto holiday here, I figure we'll start with this. We haven't talked about FTX in a couple of episodes. This interview, I don't know if you if you'll get these references, Ricky, but 
in my rankings of epically terrible interviews, I put this slightly ahead of the Sarah Palin, Katie Couric interview, but not quite as horrific as the Tom Cruise jumping on Oprah's couch interview. So I'd say it's probably number two in horrific interviews in my rankings. Hmm. Every time you preface, like you're not going to know this reference, the answer is I probably don't, but those sound like they predate me potentially. Google the Tom Cruise one. It's truly scary. Okay. Yeah. Well, what were your highlights from this <laughs> from this interview? Well, it was it's it's weird because there I'll talk about the body language and the optics of it. Mm-hmm. So to start off with, this was an hour plus interview that Sam Bankman Fried did from the Bahamas, beaming into the Deal Book Summit. So it was weird in that sense, and he was asked whether he was going to come to the United States at one point. He seemed to demur on that, said that if he was asked to to testify in front of Congress, he would take that seriously. He was asked why he didn't like what his lawyers said and whether they advised him to do the interview. And he joked about how his lawyers told him definitely not to, but he wanted to clear the air. It was kind of a weird, tense moment. But at various points, the audience was laughing. And I think some people have criticized the audience for laughing, but I think there was just a lot of nervous energy. Sam Bankman-Fried just could not stop shaking his leg. He looked extremely nervous. He's always been like that, though. Yeah, yeah. He... I don't have like a lot of familiarity with him, but that's what people say. He's always and been it, like that in all of his interviews, even when he wasn't outed. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like, obviously the substance is what matters here. And he, he said some things that you would expect him to say. He said he screwed up. It, it sounds like a, a bunch of kids uh, who were on Adderall having a sleepover party. Um, I mean, look, I screwed up. Like, I was CEO. He was asked about criminal liability. He says, there's a time and place for me to think about myself and my own future. I don't think this is it. I think the most emotional moment to me was when Andrew Ross Sorkin read a letter from an investor who lost his life savings and accused, the letter was was pretty barbed towards Sam Bakeman fried you know, asking him why he did what he did. And I thought this just touched off a very defensive period the the interview is in general is very defensive, even though at periods of time he owned up to certain things. I think one of the biggest areas where he may have lied, and I'll talk about why I think he lied, is when he talked about how around November 6th, 7th, and 8th is when he said, quote, I started to become nervous that FTX is not going to be able to fill its customer withdrawals. And by late November 6th, I was very nervous about that. And I was starting to think about like emergency scenarios. And I'm starting to think about things that might end badly here. And he basically kept saying that around November 6th to 8th is when he realized things were really bad. And I texted with a friend of mine who's a crypto executive who's down here in Miami who uh, helps run one of the biggest crypto firms out there that's still standing. And what she, she had a lot of things to say, and I'm going to go through a few things that she said, and, and I'm not going to mention her name, but she said that uh, Sam Bankman fried was shopping around a deck and his financials well before November 6th. And in those financials, it was very clear that he knew he had a problem. And it was uh, clear at that point that the co-mingling of funds was happening. And she wrote, those financials, this is her direct quote, she said, those financials he shared with people included the use of customer funds and a six to $8 billion hole. He's lying about the sequence. He knew he had a problem November 6th. That's what she said. And this is somebody, you know, who would know. And so, and mm-hmm. she also said that when she met him in person, he straight up said he was on drugs and his leg, she also said his leg was twitching, which 
doesn't really say a whole lot. In this interview, he says he was on legal drugs. So when he was asked about parties and things like that. So it, it seems like there's a lot more here, Ricky, but it seems like he still might not be fully truthful, which begs the question as to why he's even doing this interview in the first place if he's going to continue to lie. Yeah, I mean, also kind of begs the fact to me of like why we're still reading into what he's saying. I'm more interested in seeing what the investigations end up dredging up because as far as I'm concerned, he has no credibility whatsoever. But it's been interesting to watch the interviews that he has given or even like the weird little DM Twitter exchanges that he has super casually with journalists here and there. There was one with um, a Vox reporter where she like pointed out that he was really good at creating the optics of being like this ethical philanthropist. And he responded in like kind of cryptic, like short little spats of text and said, yeah, he, he, which is an interesting thing to say in your interview after you just got like busted for ruining people's lives essentially, or their, their livelihoods. Um, I had to be, it's what reputations are made of to some extent. I feel bad for those who got fucked by it, by this dumb woke game. We play, we woke Westerners play where we all say the right shibboleths and everyone likes us. Mm. Now he's saying that he donated to the same number of Republicans as Democrats, but that that was all um, on the back burner. And and he said that it's because reporters freak the fuck out if you donate to Republicans. They're all super liberal, and I didn't want to have that fight. So <laughs> well, he, even like his his veneer, he's like, fuck it, I don't care. Like, this is who I really am, and it was all a front and a show. Well, he was asked about this in the interview with Sorkin, and he said he didn't realize that she was still a journalist or didn't think of her as a journalist. This is not meant to be a, a public interview. It was a longtime friend of mine who I stupidly uh, forgot was also a reporter. Uh, I thought I was speaking in a personal capacity. Um, I, I'm not sure what they thought the capacity was at the time, but it certainly ended up uh, being reported on. He thought they were, they were talking as friends, which is really crazy. He needs... That's so weird. Yeah. Like, how do you not think of it? You can't talk to somebody who's, I mean, maybe it's because Elon's selling the blue check marks and now nobody knows who's really a journalist. But like, you definitely you can't that, just go on a little. I, it's one of my favorite I, I do things. hate that because it makes no sense. I've, it makes no sense. I feel like there's just a lot but, more kids at you know. the cool table now. I think you're upset about it. That's I, okay. I, yeah, no, I just don't <laughs> know what the utility of it is then. Like, just take them all away at that point, as far as I'm concerned. But anyways, I Okay, but here's the thing. Here's the thing, though, about this. He says, and I believe him based on his difference of tone in that uh, that exchange with the Vox reporter than his tone in this interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin, but I, I think it only serves to prove that he's full of shit because in, if he's talking to people he thinks are friends and he's totally arrogant and totally saying, mm -hmm. hey, I lied I, you know, when I was talking about being pro-regulation, I actually say fuck the regulators or whatever, yeah. and he comes across like a totally arrogant prick there and then he comes across in this interview with Andrew Ross Sorkin as this guy who's like, you know, humbled and really wants to do right by customers. I'm like, this guy is just lying. Like he's tone shifting yeah. based on who he's talking to, which makes a lot of what he says totally suspect. You know, my friend who was at that crypto firm said, you know, I think she generally thought Sorkin did probably a decent job, although she felt like the the media has generally been treating him with kid gloves, which is something we've heard from a lot of people. But she says the question she would ask is that given that we've been in a crypto winter that uh, and we've been in it for some time that Sam Baker-Fried should have known for a while now that whether or not his actual books were problematic he should have he should have been planning for the fact that 
he uh, had this multi-billion dollar hole. And what should have been asked was, she said this would be her question, quote, how did you expect to make those customers whole and on what time frame, and what was your rationale for doing that? Meaning like if you're mixing these funds, like at what point did you think you could get out of this, right? It's almost like the Bernie Madoff question, right? Like if you're going to start shifting money around, did you even have a plan to get out of it? Yeah. I mean, I I don't think that there's any sort of deniability on his end that this was just a disaster and he must have known as much. The new CEO, John Jay, who has 40 years of experience pulling companies that are in shambles back together, said in a report, quote, never in my career have I seen such a complete failure of co- corporate controls and such a complete absence of trustworthy financial information as occurred here. They were they had spent $300 million on real estate for senior staff. I mean, like it just it's it's so blatant and I'm just personally not really interested in even giving this guy like the airtime to just like blow air out of his mouth and lie to people continuously. I don't yep. know. I mean, I'm I, I'll wait and see what their um, bankruptcy hearings bring up and like what investigations bring up. There's a class action lawsuit against them that just came down. So I think there's a lot to wait and see and the reverberations will be continued to be felt throughout the entire industry. Yeah, he did. There's one other notable thing, you know, I've talked about previously on this podcast that I know his mom, he mentioned he was asked about real estate that they own, and it's really puzzling that he owned so much real estate in, in the Bahamas that was purchased with company assets, which really means customer assets. But one of the p- properties is in his mom's name, and we was asked about it. He said he seemed to apply that his mom has been involved in the running of the company, that like his parents would, would come to the Bahamas, stay there when they were advising the company, which is news to me. And I've been asking around to see if anybody had heard him refer to that before. That would be huge because there's two Stanford law professors. And if they're wrapped up in this, that's going to be hell for them. A couple other just quick things that have happened Mm. outside of this interview since the last time we covered this. One is that there was a class action lawsuit filed against Sam Bankman-Fried. It also names a ton of famous people who've been high profile backers of FTX, including Tom Brady, Giselle, Steph Curry, Shaquille O'Neal, David Ortiz, Naomi Osaka, Larry David, Kevin O'Leary. And that seems super notable. We've also had uh, a couple of firms go under. The crypto brokerage Genesis is said to be on the verge of bankruptcy. BlockFi uh, filed for bankruptcy, acknowledging that it had a significant exposure to FTX. And BlockFi was last valued at $4.8 billion. And this is a company that was founded in 2017. And it's just another one of these firms uh, to declare bankruptcy. It's competitors Celsius and Voyager Digital also went bankrupt in July, which in many ways was like a precipitating moment for all of this. So there's just a lot of chaos out there, Ricky, in the crypto space. And Lord knows uh, if we're at the beginning of the chaos, the end of the chaos or right in the middle of it. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's all going to continue to kind of crumble down as a result as more of these brokerages go under. So yeah. um, not loving my investment. <laughs> you got to get out of That's it. Okay. The largest protests since Tiananmen Square in 1989 are rocking China. Anger and frustration, strict zero COVID lockdowns. They're calling for the end of lockdowns, the end of testing, all of the zero COVID measures that have ruled daily life here. These are different because they're making a direct call for political action, political change. This is unprecedented since Xi Jinping took power. (laughs) 
let's welcome on our producer, Michael Hendricks. Hey, what's up, guys? Michael has been digging deep into what's been going on in China right now. Just uh, making a call to the the lost State Department over here. <laughs> well, Michael, it seems like there's just a ton of protest activity going on in China right now. Yeah, I mean that that's absolutely the case. Um, you know, when we see these, it's it's staggering, and the content of the protests is also not something we're used to seeing. But um, you know, just just to to give some background on on where this all started. What people are pointing to is this deadly fire that happened at an apartment complex in uh, a city called Urumqi in northwest China. And that is the capital city of Xinjiang province, which you know we know here uh, for as the site of staggering human rights violations on the part of the Chinese regime. You know, hundreds upon hundreds of political re-education camps where more than a million Uyghurs are thought to be interned. But you know, it, in this fairly remote city, there's this deadly fire, which happened a week ago today, I believe. And that ultimately kills at least 10 people, very possibly more, but that's the official toll. And I think it's not the tragedy per se that people started responding to and coming out into the streets. It is, um, it's the fact that firefighters, A, took like three hours to get the fire under control. You had these videos come out showing um, these fire trucks like a weirdly long distance away, kind of like hopelessly aiming this fire hose that wasn't even hitting the fire. Michael, it, it, reminds, it reminds me of the Triangle Shirt, not that I was alive during the Triangle Shirt Race Factory, but it, it, it feels to me like that. You probably know this, Ricky, because you're an NYU, you were a former NYU yeah. student, like right off of- Took classes in the building. Yeah, Creepy. so right off of Washington Square Park, like back at, you know, in, you know, back in, you know, 1900s, I guess, in the US, early 1900s, there was- I think it was 1910, somewhere around there. Yeah, there was like this fire- uh, in one of the upper floors of a building overlooking Washington Square Park where there was, uh, you know, female workers in a factory, garment factory, I believe it was, and, and a fire happened and they were trapped up there. And it's like eerily the same thing. Firefighters couldn't get up there because the ladders weren't big enough yeah. and people died. I mean, they had barricaded the exits to keep them from taking breaks. And like in a similar way, there are reports that in this apartment complex, they had barricaded closed doors in order to keep people from leaving um, in case they had COVID or because they were trying to enforce the law lockdown. Um, there's also reports that it's potentially like the firefighters were delayed because they were trying to get past cars that had just been like abandoned due to lockdowns and the fact that you don't really need them now and just all of that um, kind of fallout. And so I think by and large, it's pretty clear that you can point your fingers to COVID policies, at least delaying this reaction and being in part responsible for these deaths. And it's really interesting to see how many cities across China are reacting to that, or at least seem very much to be aware of each other's existence in terms of different groups of protesters, which would insinuate that they've gotten through some of the internet blocks that China has in place somehow, because there you see very similar patterns of protest methods in places across the country. And it's pretty clear that they know each other are out there and exist and to a certain extent, which is um, demonstrative of a larger degree of communication than I think the Chinese government really expected. Yeah. And it's also demonstrative of a larger degree of unrest than the Chinese regime was either expected or would, of course, want and is, you know, willing to countenance. So, you know, while this wasn't universally the case among all the tens of thousands of people who were out there over the weekend, the fact that you have any instances of people openly shouting for Xi Jinping to step down as leader of China, that is not something we see ever 
and and that is is the part that's that's really kind of catching people's attention around the world you know, onlookers who just this is this is an unprecedented challenge to him and it's it's possible that this fizzles out but you know where this leads is is very much a TBD. Mm. Yeah. But anyways, uh, that that does kind of dovetail well with uh, what I talked about with with Ian. He's 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 just this he's this great journalist who reported on China for decades. He won a Pulitzer there with the Wall Street Journal, and these days um, he is a China expert at the Council on Foreign Relations. And it, it was great to get a hold of him with everything going on right now. So first, Ian, thank you for joining us, and a warm welcome. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Um, the first question here is the most immediate, and that is these widespread protests that that many are calling the fiercest challenge to state power in China since the Tiananmen Square protests more than three decades ago now. Um, we've seen the government deploy this massive police presence to, to tamp these down, you know, as expected. And, and though we've seen some reports of clashes with demonstrators, um, we don't have any indications right now that the government would resort to really serious amounts of, of deadly force to quell these. Help us situate these protests in modern Chinese history. And, you know, do you see them as the turning point that, you know, I see many commentators suggesting that, that this is this is going to be a, a really landmark moment. Is that to some extent, is that wishful thinking on the part of some Western onlookers who would like to see this regime challenged? Yeah, not just Western onlookers. I think there are many people inside China as well who would like to see the regime challenged and the regime to change um, in some way to become more moderate, more open and inclusive. Uh, I'm hesitant to say it's a turning point because those are called an awful lot in China, um, that this is a turning point. That's a turning point. Nothing will be the same. It's the largest since XXX date. And those rarely take place. Um, and that's often the case in history in any country, that it's hard to assess the importance of an event right when it's happening. When something's right in your face, you think it's the biggest thing ever. And then a couple of years later, maybe not so much. I do think they are important, um, but maybe it, the absolute importance will be hard to judge for a while. Yeah, I, I, relevant to that, of course, is what the level of popular support that these protests have, um, which to me, I, I would say, difficult to gauge. Um, you get an impression from looking at this reporting um, that, that this is widespread, certainly, in the tens of thousands. We're not talking about anything small or particularly limited here. But, you know, is this the expression of a young, freedom-minded view in, in this kind of rising generation in China? Or, or is this the sort of movement that you could foresee you know, further metastasizing a, around the country? Yeah, I think it, it has resonated in China. One of the projects I'm working on now is a, a book that's coming out next year on uh, what I call underground histories of China. So these are people who are writing the unofficial histories in China or counter histories might be another way of looking at it. Uh, these are underground documentary filmmakers, people publishing Samizdat publications and things like that. This has all grown quite a lot in the past 10, 20 years. And you do see a network of people that has risen up despite the harsh crackdowns, which are all real, the surveillance state, the uh, facial recognition software and everything else, the closed circuit televisions on every street corner, that there are still digital ways of countering the digital state that, uh, not to be romantic and to say that it's equivalent or that it's gonna overthrow the CCP or anything like that, but they are 
things that are worth noting, and they could have an impact in the future. So not to draw a false equivalency, the government still has very much the upper hand, but it's not all one-sided. Turning back to the origin of of these protests, uh, I think many rightly wonder, you know, even with all the kind of um, bureaucratic intransigence that you would expect from an autocratic regime like China's, why the country has held so tightly to its zero COVID policy. And I I, I guess the question I want to ask on back of that is, is that more out of a resistance to changing course or out of fear that the country would struggle to handle further spread of the virus? Because I've kind of seen both explanations given. Yeah, I think it's hard to know the exact reasons or the balance. I think all of those things that you mentioned are true. We don't know enough of what's going on inside the Zhongnan High leadership compound to know the weight given to each one. But if you just take it objectively, China would have difficulty, even if they had a mass vaccination campaign of mRNA vaccines. So that's the, the, the sort of the best vaccines that are out there that China is not using right now. But if China were to suddenly pivot and say, okay, we're going to use mRNA vaccines such as the Moderna or the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine, and we'd have 100% compliance, let's say, you know, relatively, whatever, 90% or something like that, um, you'd still have deaths, right? And you'd still have people who would go to the ICUs. Chinese hospitals are not that good. Um, China has, the hospital system in China is used as a primary healthcare facility. So if you have the flu or something like that, you go to the hospital. And so hospitals are filled with people with relatively minor ailments and illnesses um, who stay in the hospital for days or weeks on end taking up beds. So the number of ICU stations is quite limited. This would require um, a huge change. It's something the government's aware of. They're trying to change the healthcare system, but it's still like that. That's the reality they have. So if they were suddenly suddenly flooding ICU units with people in their you know 70s, 80s, 90s who are getting ill with COVID, they would have a real problem, even in the optimal vaccination situation. So I think that's the, that's one side of it. But um, it's unwillingness to even begin this process. Um, they have had the vaccine there. BioNTech, which is the German company that sort of created the key software, the key components that's used in the Pfizer vaccine, um, they signed a joint venture with Fortune, uh, which is a Chinese uh, biotech company. Uh, more than a year ago, they could have been producing the vaccine and, and, and vaccinating people. So there clearly is a resistance at the upper levels. Now, the exact reasons for that, one can only speculate. Perhaps they want Chinese companies to develop it themselves. Perhaps they don't want to have to have a foreign joint venture. Uh, they are, though it's clear, also caught in their own sort of narrative. The narrative is that we have zero COVID. There's nothing to worry about. You don't really need to get vaccinated in China because there's no COVID. Um, and also the other part of zero COVID is that uh, zero deaths. It's almost like any death is one too many. And of course, that's a great position to have, but uh, people die of all kinds of things all the time in any country, especially in a big country. There's thousands or tens of thousands, I don't know the exact statistics, of automobile accidents in China, but nobody shuts down all the roads in China. Um, same thing with the normal flu. Uh, thousands of people, and I'm sure it's tens or hundreds of thousands of people die every year in China from the flu. But again, you don't lock down the entire country. So they've 
they've got themselves a little bit trapped. And now how they pivot away from that, I think, is the real challenge. And then how much of that is personal pre prestige of Xi Jinping, ego, things like that, I don't think we can judge right now. Yeah, I, it, it feels so far away now, given the trajectory of you know, COVID restrictions here in, in the U.S. But you know, there was a time that I remembered not that long ago, last year even, when um, there were many who I wouldn't say were complimentary is not the right word, but we're it, pointing to the fact that, you know, hey, at least in an authoritarian regime like China's, they are able to force a level of compliance with the COVID restrictions that they want to implement to a level that a, a free country like the U.S. simply could not. And, you know, there were comparisons made between the death count there and the death count here and like the relative um, efficacy of, of each approach. And I think what's been borne out in the last year, certainly, is that while the rest of the world has sort of turned to, we need to learn how to live with this virus sort of approach, China has has gone really no way toward, toward doing that. Yeah, no, there's no doubt that up until about a year ago, um, the Chinese approach was not necessarily all that bad. I recall I was in Beijing in early 2020, um, I was still living there at the time, and shortly after the virus began to spread, I got a notice um, under my front door from the local health authorities in something like six different languages um, saying, uh, here's what you have to do, wash your hands, be careful, you know, all this stuff. We didn't know exactly how the, the virus is spread, so there was still the emphasis on surface transmission. And, and, you know, it was kind of impressive. I mean, here, here they were early on. They were, they were, had social distancing. They had masking in place. I mean, part of it's cultural. People in East Asia tend to wear masks more often anyway, and especially in China with the, North China with the very dry air and the winter and the pollution and all that. But it was, it was a pretty impressive, um, and, and yeah, the crackdown in Wuhan, not the crackdown, but the lockdown in early 2020, was quite harsh. It was arbitrary. It was fast. It didn't leave anybody any time to lay in stores. Uh, there were all kinds of, there's all kinds of collateral damage, but it worked and they didn't have the bodies piling up in morgues that you had in this country. I remember, you know, in Italy, they were storing cadavers in churches because they didn't have room in the morgues. They couldn't refrigerate them. They were putting them you know, in cellars and stuff like that. They didn't have that kind of a situation. Um, and, and I think that that was something worth keeping in mind. It's just that they didn't adapt after a while. And I think that's probably where has led to all this frustration. You know, Chinese are no different from other people. I mean, they get you get frustrated with just constant lockdowns. And the nature of this beast is that you can never really predict it. You have to continually lock down. And that's just, I think, got to be, is get, has been getting to be a bit too much for people. Right. And, you know, like you say, it's a perfectly predictable and, and natural reaction in the public. With these protests going on, uh, one thing that, that's kind of been swept up, and, and not that this would get immense coverage here in, in the States, certainly, but um, midterm elections in Taiwan. Uh, the country's president, um, Tsai Ing-wen, had framed her party's campaign um, almost like largely around resistance to Chinese incursion. But, you know, she, her party gets trounced. She has to resign as party leader after steep losses to a, a more Beijing-friendly opposition party. So, like... As we zoom out to the world stage a little, you know, hanging over just about everything China does these days, 
is the question of when and if China will make its move on Taiwan and, and how the Western world, the, U, the U.S. in particular, would respond in that case. So <laughs> I realize I'm basically asking you to predict the course of the 21st century now, but you know what indications have you seen of China's designs on Taiwan and and how do you foresee that all playing out in I uh I, I will say the next decade to to give you a pass on the whole century. Yeah, well this is of course very hard to predict, but I think there are two things that we sort of forget and I think you set up the question well because the, the one key thing we have to think about is Taiwan itself and what are the dynamics inside that country. And sometimes in our country, in the United States at least, we tend to talk about Taiwan in the abstract as if it's an object that we can't let China get. Um, and we forget that it's got 20 odd million people there um, who are living in a democracy. And in the case of these recent midterm elections in Taiwan, people were not entirely satisfied with the way the DPP, which is the, the party of Tsai Ing-wen, the president, had performed. And so in these local elections, her party pretty much got trounced. Now, whether that transfers to the national stage is, is unclear. Um, but I think it, it, it will require a peaceful resolution of all this will require um, some sort of leadership in all three states because we also need uh, Taiwan to figure out what it really wants and how far it's willing to push things. I think the Taiwanese society, just like our own society, is, is sharply divided over this. It's not that all people there uh, want independence. I think in an ideal world, if you said, could you have independence and there'll be no war with China, et cetera, et cetera, probably most people would. But the reality is they they know that there's there are con constraints. So I think that... Uh, you know, looking forward, China's going to push, but unless Taiwan declares independence or does something like that, I don't see China launching an invasion. Now, I could be proved wrong. I, I hope I'm not. I don't think I'm being naive in this regard. I think that an invasion of Taiwan would be an existential gamble for whoever runs China. Uh, again, if it, of course, if they were to have an economic collapse in China, some sort of a massive domestic crisis, there is the potential that this could uh, result in some sort of adventure overseas. I tend to think that's not likely in the next five to 10 years. So I, I think it's still very much open how this is resolved. And I would, I kind of think the status quo will carry on for another five to 10 years. But beyond that, I, all bets are off. That would be my short answer. Well, you know, I, I will take that. Yeah, the sh the short term uh, lack of chaos, I think, is appealing <laughs> to me at least. So, I think we can leave it there. But I, I do want to thank you again for uh, for coming on and lending us your insight. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. And one last thing that I think is worth talking about that's making some waves in terms of the domestic response here is, it's fairly obvious to anyone that. Um, Apple is very much dependent on the manufacturing capacity of China and the prices that they can provide. And reports are going around that AirDrop has been removed specifically or blocked specifically from China. That was a few weeks back, but um, a lot of speculation has arisen over whether that's corruption to some degree because AirDrop is a very useful tool that was used in Hong Kong um, and continues to be used to protester, by protesters up until it was disabled in order to go around the
the um, kind of internet surveillance system so you could move things or, or communicate directly from device to device in a way that you couldn't by text or by WhatsApp or by anything that's not encrypted because China essentially blocks that. And so there's a lot of outrage around and speculation around why Apple um, potentially capitulated to the demand to kill airdrop in China or, you know, what the motivation would have been behind that. But I think that's something to keep an eye on. And it seems very, very concerning to me to see an American company potentially enabling the stifling of of protesters communicating. That is really scary. And, and obviously, we'll keep an eye on this story. You know, we're talking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. That led to a lot of worker protections in the United States. It really led to a movement. And the real hope here, yeah. I know China, you know, modern day China is, is a lot different than us at any stage. Yeah, it's also a private company right. that locked people in and the government could reform that. This is the government itself doing it, so. Let's move to another story that, you know, is is scary in a different kind of way. And this is a, a pair of stories by two journalists, Alex Zimmerman at Chalkbeat and Abigail Kramer from ProPublica and The City. And this is about special education in New York, but it really is about special education across the country. And what they found was that in recent years, uh, special education spending, particularly money going to families to pay for private education in New York City has 5X'd since 2012. And they spent uh, $918 million, you know, by some estimates, depending on how you count, more than a billion dollars. This could be debatable whether we should be giving people private funds to seek special education elsewhere. But what makes this particularly damning is that this money is not going to all kids. It might not even go to the neediest kids. This is going to a lot of wealthy families. When they looked at the data, in New York is separated into 32 geographic regions. These are sometimes referred to as community districts. More than half of the settlement agreements, and I'll talk about what a settlement agreement is in a bit, involved students who live in just four of the richest and whitest districts, which includes Manhattan's Upper East Side and Park Slope in Brooklyn. And so, and these kids are going to fancy schools, sometimes $100,000 in tuition for these schools. It's really, really baffling what's going on here. And it's been just exploding in cost. Yeah, I mean, I think I, just to explain the two different avenues and like how this arose in the first place, um, there's a guarantee of free and appropriate education for all students, including those with special needs. And school districts are required to either offer them like an adequate normal education or cover expenses for private schools if they can't do so based on the disabilities that a student um, has. And so there's two ways to go about getting that funding. The first is if you have the means, you can pay for tuition and then seek reimbursement under a reasonable period of time. You just have to show that you don't have adequate programs at the school that your, your child should be going to and prove that the school that you choose is appropriate. And if you can't afford to pay the tuition up front, then you have to get acceptance from the school with the promise that you'll get the government to pay for it. Um, and you have to go through basically the same legal process, but prove you can't pay. But that's less than a third of the people then go through the other path because that's a more difficult kind of way to get your kid into the school and you don't even really have the money versus like if there's a limited amount of seats, potentially a school will favor admitting a wealthier student, especially because it's not um, like in, in instances of special education, it's not like they're just going off of like your SAT score or right. something. Like it's a matter of like who can afford to put their kids here. And so I'm not going to demonize wealthy families for saying like, 
the schools are not working for me. I have these connections and these resources. I know the system's in place and I'm going to utilize it. I think the problem is that it's just like the system itself is broken and not serving people in in a more equal way. Um, and I'm also not going to demonize the fact that over like just in the past three years, it went from $499 million spent in New York City to $918 million. And I don't think that's just because they're these greedy parents. I think it's because school districts, especially in the pandemic, were really failing kids, particularly kids with special education needs, and continue to do so in the wake of it with ongoing whispers about potential school shutdowns and, and you know, ongoing mask requirements that went on for young kids way longer than adults in the city. And so I think that, like, yes, parents are 100% right to say that the public school system is not serving their kids. The problem is that the legal system and framework is now being used to a degree that it never really has before. And the disparities are becoming even more obvious in the way that it's getting doled out. Well, yeah, I think the, the, the background here is that Bloomberg lawyered up and would fight these. And so that's why these numbers weren't pretty dramatic under him. And then de Blasio pulled that back, made it a lot easier to get these cases through. They weren't fighting a lot of these cases on appeal. And it seems like Adams's administration might be taking some steps to go back closer to the Bloomberg standard. And so this is uh, Chancellor David Banks indicated that um, he might want to slash some of these funds. He said, quote, all this money that is meant for the kids in our public schools are going to private schools, he said. And he said, quote, folks, I figured out how to game the system. We wouldn't be having this fight about budget cuts, meaning like, I guess he's implying that this is leading to budget cuts elsewhere. And that's where I start to blame some of these parents. If you if you dive in, you know, I've been in these meetings before, many, many, what we call IEP meetings, which is called Individualized Education Plan, essentially under the Individuals with Disabilities Act, IDEA, we call it. It's federal law, which guarantees kids that, you know, that what you call that free appropriate education. And there's a three-step process. One is you identify a need through assessments. You sometimes have a therapist come in. Sometimes the parents initiate this. Sometimes the school initiates it. But you have a couple, a lot of people around the table. I've been in a lot of these meetings. And you identify what the student's uh, need is. Uh, you create a service plan, what we call an IEP, which is basically a document that says, how are we going to serve this kid? And then after that, you determine, well, does the traditional setting serve the child or does another special school within the district serve the child? Or if it's pretty extreme, it should be. This was in Nashville. This would rarely happen in Nashville. Would you send the kid to a private school? Because usually the system should have a school that can help that kid. Now, when I looked into this, the data that's presented here, the, Pro, the ProPublica articles in particular, what you're seeing is a lot of kids who are being diagnosed with stuff that I wouldn't say isn't the most severe on the spectrum and are the most gameable of uh, the categories of special education, right? Because special education and IEPs involve all sorts of things, intellectual disabilities, speech and language impairments, hearing impairments, visual impairments, traumatic brain injury, all sorts of stuff, the autism spectrum disorders. But a lot of these kids are are being diagnosed with stuff like anxiety disorders, uh, things like that you and Jonathan Haidt and others have been writing about like that are on the rise in the general population of students, that if all parents did what these parents did, the whole system would be bankrupt. Like some of these schools are like, they're, they're prescribing horseback riding for anxiety. I mean, this is not the kind of thing that should be happening on public dollars. It's clear, like obviously not all of this is parents gaming the system, 
but it seems like there's a whole lot of that going on and we're not even digging in to be like, is this a legitimate need or not? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's completely fair to say that we need to have like stronger thresholds to make sure that kids are actually meeting them and and qualifying. But just to be clear, we don't know what percentage are not actually legitimate. I mean, there's also the spikes in suicide rates and self-harm rates among young people right now is also rising. So just because somebody is depressed or anxious does not mean that they might not necessarily have been hospitalized for something. So I think it's a case-by-case basis, very much so. And some parents might have very legitimate reasons to be like imminently concerned about the well-being of their children. And I think it also just correlates the fact that it's doubled in just the past three years, roughly, correlates pretty exactly with when I believe that school districts have largely been failing kids, especially kids that had issues in the first place and disparities got worse. And so I just think that like, I don't, I don't really want to point fingers necessarily. I don't think that this, this whole system is put in place just to like, mess up people and and cause disparities. I think it's just like the alarm bells are going off and saying that this is not being distributed equally. Something more universal and standard probably seems like it needs to be in place, something more stringent. But I mean, it even could be a case for, at the very least, a baseline voucher program, because right now we essentially do have a voucher program that you just need to have like the legal connections and remedies and loopholes to access, which is Yes, in my estimation. Right. Well, this gets this gets to de Blasio's hypocrisy around school choice, right? He allowed this billion-dollar system to proliferate, yet was opposed to charter schools, right? Where we're talking about sending yeah. a charter school, we're talking about you know a couple ten thousand dollars. I forget what the per pupil funding in is in New York. What twenty, thirty thousand dollars probably per yeah. student, and we're talking about a hundred thousand dollars per student for this program, and you know. I might not be an expert on anxiety disorders, but I don't think it, those disorders are contained in the Upper East Side and Park Slope, right? So it's like no, certainly and not. I know that's not yeah, what you're no, saying. it's the inequality, yeah. but that doesn't that doesn't like diminish the fact that there are an increasing number of parents who are acutely concerned about their children's well-being across all demographical groups. It's just a matter of like yes, a certain proportion of them are able to access the remedy, and how do we? standardize that. But I think that I think saying that the threshold has risen in terms of how much we owe parents in in vouchers or in um and like educational funding is higher than it was a couple of years ago, just based on the pandemic and the realities that families are facing. Yeah, there's also the dollars and cents thing. Like I want all kids to have great education. Like if I could give every kid a hundred thousand dollars education, I would. But we would never be able to afford it. We can't even afford the system we have right now. And meanwhile, more than 2,600 kids who are mostly black and Latino uh, are being labeled under a different label, not anxiety disorder, but emotional uh, disability. And they're being put into largely city-run special education schools, uh, many that are failing terribly to educate these kids. These are schools by, by the data that have some of the lowest attendance rates, the highest dropout rates, and uh, students who are just really, really struggling. And so I think it's just another way that inequity plays out in the system, and it's not just New York. The Teacher Project surveyed 50 state departments of education about these private placement trends. 17 states that responded with demographic information, which at least kudos to them for providing that information, um, showed a huge overrepresentation of white and wealthy families. So in five of the seven states which reported uh, white students are significantly overrepresented. In California, Massachusetts, and New York, the share of white students in private placement exceeds the share 
in public education by about 10 percentage points. And in California, Massachusetts, low-income students with disabilities were only half as likely to receive a private placement as their wealthier special education peers. So this is just another way that resource inequity is playing out. And it's really frustrating. What remedy would you want? I mean, I think to me, it sounds like like a standardized voucher system based on the disabilities that a student has would probably be the best fix. Yeah, I think we need to make tough choices around some of the more subjective. And I, and I don't. I want to be careful about the word subjective, but what I mean by subjective is uh, just simply based on claims being made by the student and the parent, like those types of disabilities versus, for instance, if you have a hearing impairment, right? We have to make some hard choices around, all right, how are we going to measure these things? Because if you have a standard where if you just if you just make a claim you can get a $100,000 voucher and the city's not going to appeal it, then obviously that's going to create a perverse incentive, right? So we need to make sure that we're appealing these things properly. I think uh, what Bloomberg was doing seemed to be working, which is you need to have some check in the system to say, if you're going to go the distance, we're going to at least look under the hood and see if this claim is right. I think second is we need to provide better special education services within the system, period, because part of what's going on here is even the parents with legitimate needs. I've had many families within my schools that would come to charters because the traditional uh, school system wasn't serving them well for special needs. And even though we as charters weren't the system, which means that charters often don't have a very uh, special special education school to send kids to. Some parents would take their kids out of that tr that specialized school for only special education kids that have all these other supports because they felt like those schools were too chaotic, they were unsafe, they weren't rigorous enough, and they would take them to charters that sometimes didn't have the same resources as those other schools. So we need to just, I think, dramatically improve special education across the board. Um, but I also think we need to do some means testing on this kind of stuff too, right? Like if you're a school that's doing horseback riding for anxiety, I think we need to look at that school and say, is there another way we could treat anxiety that doesn't cost as much? Um, you know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like in general, we're just not asking a lot of questions here. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. All right. Well, we have a voicemail to, to wrap up the show. Uh, let's play the clip. Hi, great show. Uh, I guess my question is pretty simple. Is Ravi really a Democrat? I think he certainly leans to be a free market capitalist in a lot of ways, um, which I love. And I'm just curious if he actually identifies fully as a Democrat. Thanks. Well, Ricky, before I answer, why don't why don't you answer based on your your experience? You know, we've been at this for almost a year mm -hmm. now. How would you characterize me? I would say yeah, but I would I don't I don't know. Like I I think there's a new kind of illiberal left faction of what people conflate with Democrats now, and I think that you're more an old school Democrat in some ways, and then you have a few really random libertarian bents like you know just going crap on the street but you also need to have your mandated vaccine so i'm never quite sure what to expect but i appreciate it i love that that's what not that i'm like radically want to decentralize our school system and hand parents checks not checks for a hundred thousand dollars but you know give them money for their own education or decriminalize drugs those are also li libertarian views there are other ones uh, yeah no it's true 
Yeah. yeah. I, I love that. That's the one. I know your mom has fixated on that. She has fixated on that. Look. She was really upset about that. Hi, mom. I'm sure she's gotten I know. this I gotta far. Talk to her. I got to talk to her about it. But okay. So here's here's the thing. We're a C3, but no secret, I'm a Democrat. I've worked in Democratic politics. I would say I'm closer to a Jared Polis Democrat than anything else, meaning I generally, in, in a lot of blue states, would cut taxes and shrink the size of government, not because I don't think government should be used to solve problems, but I think that we just keep layering on more and more programs without really thinking about how to effectively spend money and make programs work, especially for the most vulnerable. Like Good examples are New York City, where we spend gazillion dollars on you know, so much more on extending a subway track than anywhere else, or more on educating our kids and more on our public housing at the services aren't really good. So I want government to work. And the, and the first step in making it work is sometimes to make it smaller. And if you could prove it works, then I'm open to making it bigger. But in most places where Democrats are in charge, I'd want them to make it smaller. Um, I'm also I, I I'm a air towards the side of personal freedom on a lot of issues. We disagreed on the vaccine stuff, but uh, the mandates, guns. But in general, yeah, guns. But to me, it's about. The commons, right? Like in, in those cases, I have a particular view on the commons, meaning like the common of public health or the common of public safety. And whenever the, the commons comes into effect, I'm a little bit more restrictive than some other libertarians. But when it comes to straight individual freedom, like drug use or going to Action Park or being a free range parent and all that kind of stuff, I err more libertarian. And I generally think capitalism is the best system we've got, but I'm a kind of a capitalism plus person to use the Bill Maher term to say like we need some checks on the system so inequality doesn't go crazy and we don't leave out the most vulnerable mm. so i guess that's but thanks for the question uh and obviously i have certain views about democracy i would say so where i think the democrats are more aligned in how i think about our elections and preserving our democracy i think we both actively confuse people with our politics because i get so much criticism that like there's no one really that's on the right on the show and then you get criticism that there's no one that's really on the left and i think we're both just kind of undefinable in a way that i i don't know i i personally feel that they're not enough media voices that are um more surprising than predictable so maybe we both fall into that category longer i spend down here in miami the more republican i may get mm. so Maybe Red I gotta, wave I gotta rubbing off. Maybe You'll come back and invest in <laughs> some crypto. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe Buy I won't have dip. enough money to come back. Yeah. All right. Dip, well, dip, dip, dip. well, enough about my politics. Uh, well, hopefully somebody ask Ricky this and we'll get her next time uh, to open up about her politics. But I want to thank our listeners. Remember what I said about Spotify stuff. Shout us out. And even if you don't have that ring, it's always good. Go on there, leave a review, talk about what you like about this show. And we'll be right back here next Tuesday. And I'll hopefully be back in New York City. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. <laughs>